for just pointing us time and time again through these songs to the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we continue our worship by looking to God in his word, beginning at verse 12, James chapter 1. These are God's words for us today, and here's what God says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to all those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, is, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You may be seated. Father, there's no word like your word. Your word is a treasure. You have disclosed yourself and given this word to us. And so as we take these next moments together and look closely and consider these words, we would ask for your help, the presence of your spirit, that we would, in fact, Behold wonderful things from your word that you would not merely impart information to us, but by your spirit you would transform us through your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is really part two. We began last week looking at verse 12, and so we really won't spend much time with verse 12. We've considered that verse 12 was an encouragement that we would remain steadfast in the face of trials. If we do, verse 12 tells us, uh, we, well, eternal life awaits us. And now verse 13, 14, and 15 is the counterbalance of sorts. Uh, it's not an encouragement to remain steadfast, but it's a warning. A warning to not allow temptation uh, to unfold in our hearts in the face of trials. For if we do, death, judgment, separation from God awaits us. You see, last week we looked at remaining steadfast. The opposite of remaining steadfast, the other choice. Well, what if I don't want to remain steadfast? What if that, uh, what, what, what else is for me to do? Well, the opposite of remaining steadfast in trials is uh, resorting to, succumbing to temptation. It says in verse 13, let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. All right, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. When did we shift gears in conversation here? Uh, beginning in verse 2, ever since verse 2, we've been talking about the subject matter of, of trials, the difficulties that we go through, the situational challenges that we face. When did we start talking about temptation? Well, I referred to this already, but in the very language that James uses, what I find so intriguing and interesting is that the word 
the words that we use in English of trial and temptation in our language are, are, are actually the same root word in uh, James's language. In fact, some reliable translations, instead of starting verse 13 as the ESV does, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Some translations uh, say, let no one say when he is being tried, I am being tempted by God. Not a, not a bad way of, of arranging it. My point is, is that on the one hand, we are still on the conversation of trials that has begun in verse 2. Still exploring the, the matter of enduring trials. And yet the new twist, as he's done every couple of verses, the, the new twist that he throws into the, the broader conversation of trials uh, is that um, uh, tr trials which are... Uh, designed or permitted by God uh, to produce spiritual maturity and steadfastness in us, uh, trials also hold the potential for temptation. So instead of remaining steadfast in trials, which we've been admonished and encouraged to do, we can, we need to he heads up, we can succumb to temptation. And so the, the new twist is, is introducing to us the, the, the connection between the trials that we face and uh, the, the temptations that we can experience. A temptation is that which seeks to allure or entice us, as we'll look at in a moment from the passage itself, but temptations are those experiences that, that seek to entice us uh, to sin, to sin against God, which is a huge deal. Let no one say, verse 13 again, let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. For uh, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. While the Lord, up to this point, as we've been specifically spoken upon trials, while the Lord allows for and even arranges trials in our lives, he is not involved in this connected matter of temptation. He is, while he designs trials for the purpose of uh, promoting steadfastness and other Christian virtues in our lives, uh, this matter of temptation which seeks to entice people to sin against God, God never works that way in that. There is no evil in God. He's one of a kind. He is a sinless being. Uh, his own nature is pure and good and just and holy. Absolute beauty resides in God. Morally beautiful and beautiful in every other category we could consider and think of. Uh, he, as a sinless being, is 
our passage is telling us is incapable. Like if you wanted to be a smarty pants and say, is there anything that God can't do? Uh, Well, God can't sin. Not because he's not a free being, but because even thinking about human freedom, we think about human nature. Uh, We think about God's being a free being. God is, is consistent with his own nature. And so in that sense, God is not free to sin. You know why? He doesn't know how to. It's not in him. It's just because what flows out of our lives is that which is just the nature of who and what we are. And so a sinless being is incapable of either A, enticing others to sin, as well as incapable of being enticed to sin. It's just not in him. He has no impulse to sin. He has no sinful desires. It's hard for us to get our mind around that kind of being because we met too many of them like that. God does bring trials in our lives. But do you realize that every trial in our lives, even the hurtful, painful ones, are not designed by him to harm us. Every trial he places in our lives is a part of his good design to, as he's told us here and elsewhere, to test the genuineness of our faith. He would rather we figure out this side of eternity rather than when we stand before the bar of judgment uh, whether we are trusting in his son or not. And so he gives us these trials of various kinds to sort out so that, so that we can even see the sorting out in our souls of who or what do we really want? Who or what do we really love? Who or what are we really trusting in? Who or what are we really worshiping? Who or what are we really all about He never designs trials. It is never his desire to have trials to become the occasion to sin against him. The purpose of trials that God brings into our lives and permits to come into our lives is ultimately for good purposes, to strengthen our faith in him, to grow us in that faith, to mature us in that faith. He has no role whatsoever. in designing things for the purpose of destroying our faith in him, to weaken our faith in him. It's just not in him. Think about that. Some of you have been hurt deeply in life. Some of you are walking through that season right now. Some of you have recently tasted the loss of a loved one. Some of you have recently received a bad medical report. Some of you are walking through the woes of financial troubles. Some of you have difficulties at work with the people that you work with. Some of you have family trouble. 
None of these are off the radar of our Lord. At each of these, he has an intent and a design coupled with them that is meant to cause us to look at our reliance upon the Lord, to test the genuineness of our faith, and to even have the good outcome of walking more closely with him, to growing deeper and stronger in the faith as he gives us the grace of his spirit to do so. You see, every, every situation in life, there is nothing that you and I are going to face this week, nothing we didn't, didn't face last week, uh, that God's design, God's curriculum program for that is to draw us toward him in faith and in dependence upon him and in obedience to him and in worship toward him. And yet there's other things in play as well in that same difficulty. The loss of a loved one, the, a bad medical report, financial troubles, work difficulties, family problems. Um, they, they, th there's other things in play, other, um, other hidden agendas or, or curricular designs to those things that, that would actually cause us to reject the Lord. Well, if I've got to do this or, or to grow independent from the Lord or to be disobedient to the Lord or to be idolatrous against the Lord. Those, those are how then in the context of those difficulties, those trials, this critter called temptation can be at play and at work in our lives. And James is aware the Lord is having him write down one of the first things that can interplay in our hearts when we're walking through these difficult seasons, and that is to lash out at God. To blame God. To blame God for, for, for the responses that are percolating in our hearts. To blame God when we are, when we are tempted to even sin against God. We're tempted to even accuse God of creating that. James says, no, you can't put the blame on God for when those trials become the occasion for temptation because, well, first of all, uh, God is incapable of drawing up something like that. He's incapable of being tempted to sin. He's incapable of designing something to tempt you or me or any of us to sin. But verse 14 does clarify where James does land the focus of the origin of when trials can become temptations. And before you look at verse 14, I know we've already read it. Before you look at it again, I just want to remind you, this is a hard word. I'm always looking for somebody or something to blame. And J James pins it on me. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire.
when trials come, as trials come. Trials are a clarifying moment for we can find ourselves so quickly and easily turned against the Lord and sin against him. And what James is saying is that when we do turn against the Lord and sin against him in the midst of a trial that he has designed to strengthen us in him, but when we turn against him in the middle of that trial, then that trial has become the occasion for a temptation. And we do that. We do that. I am my own cause for my sin. Are you ready for this? You are your own cause for your sin. Now, certainly, I, 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 James doesn't go into other factors that the other places in the Scripture do. Uh, Flip Wilson is maybe only partially right. He's onto something. No, the devil didn't make us do it, but... But, but the devil is certainly involved, isn't he? And the scriptures elsewhere talk about that. We're even to be uh, aware of the devices of the devil. The world, the, the scripture calls this, this, uh, these systems of commitments and institutions and mindsets, he calls this the world. And the, and the world has a place in our understanding as to how temptation plays itself out. And, uh, and um, even other people, other people have some sort of play or some sort of place in our lives of understanding uh, the, the, the influences that give rise to temptation. I mean, uh, people are mean to you. And when people are mean to you, it just, it, uh, it just feels like there's a direct connection. Their meanness, their harsh words to you, their unkind treatment of you, is, is just the immediate determination for why you sinned. In other words, if, if you all never were mean to me, I, I wouldn't... No, that's not true, is it? If I had never been done wrongly as a child, not to minimize the amount of hurt that one can experience as a child or even as, as an adult... Uh, but James doesn't touch on any of that. Not that the scriptures elsewhere don't talk about that. But, but James, for right now, is just saying, look, I just got to get to the bottom line here. And the bottom line is that if there were no devil, and there is, but if there were no devil, if there were no world system that hates God, and there is, if there was never, if, there, if, if everybody around you was only holy all the time, then James is saying, there, we, there is still a huge problem located in our soul. We have these, James tags them as desires. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We have these uh, inner Things, these inner longings in our souls that actually longs for things that God prohibits. We, 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 we have these longings in our souls that are actually repulsed by or resistant to the things that God requires. There's a heart of mess going on 
in here. Oh, sure, there's the devil, there's the world, there's other people. I, I don't want to flatten this, but, but, I, but I do want to land where James is landing with us at this moment. James is locating the, the central feature in the desires of our heart or the desires of our soul. Our desires can and frequently do run counter to God's work to God's will, to God's ways. I don't mean that every single desire that pulsates in our hearts are like that, but I know there's enough of that in me and in you, this thing called desires. God made us to be desiring creatures, but ever since the fall of mankind, our desires have gotten distorted, and in part, they've gotten distorted because, think about it, what's desires connected to? Desires are connected to our loves. Our loves have become disordered. We only desire that which we love. I, I have no temptation this morning. I have no desire in my soul for liver and onions. I mean, you come up to me, hey, Joe, look at here. Got me some liver and onions. Good for you. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's not going to appeal to any category of desire I have. Now, I, a caveat, if, if it was just you and I stranded on a desert island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and we didn't have anything to eat, and, uh, and you had happened to bring some liver and onions with you. That, I mean, all right, so, you know, we, we could parse this out, but that's not what you're here for. But, uh, so don't come up to me later and go, oh, well, what, you know. Uh, but I'm just talking about the normative. I live in St. Charles County. Now, related to that, so, so how desires are connected to love, I just say this as a sidebar. Um, uh, when, when that which we love is not in our hands, we, we call that desire. When that which we love is in our hands, we call that delight. Uh, when that which, the converse of love, when, when, uh, when that which we hate is, is not in our hands, we call that dread. And, and uh, I dread liver and onions. And when that which we hate is in our hands, we call that despair. So just connecting our affections, our emotions, and how they are, in a sense, informed by and designed, uh, uh, informed by and driven by our loves. The point is, is that human nature, as fallen human beings, we have sinful inclinations. We love wrong. We value wrong. And if left unchecked, what James is telling us, if we follow this thing out, if left unchecked, our own desires will kill us. So that's why when we hear our culture catechizing us. So we need to be skeptical when, the, when our culture says, you need to follow the passions of your heart. Oh, yeah. Is that right? When our culture catechizes or tries to catechize us, catechize us to, to, to talk about the sheer nobility of all desires, when it says, the heart wants what the heart wants. To which James would say, yeah, and that'll kill you. 
But we don't get the rest of that on a bumper sticker. Um, See, James goes on as he locates the, the, the source of these temptations in the context of our trials is that there's something percolating not outside of us, which is what the trial is, but as we're going through what we're going through on the outside, there's something percolating inside of us, and that's desires. So when James tells us in verse 12 to remain steadfast in trials, We don't, like, so why don't we remain steadfast? I mean, God told us to. God wants us to. It's his will for us to do it. Because I don't want to. Because what I desire, based upon what I love, is I, I love my comfort. And this trial is, is not producing the comfort that I'm entitled to. I'm an American, after all. I got rights. So we pass on the goodwill of our Lord to remain steadfast in trial because we long for love something other than the work, the endurance, the difficulty of remaining steadfast in the midst of trial. We want something else, relief. James explains how this, these desires actually function, and he uses a fishing metaphor, so uh, maybe, maybe our fishing guys can help me sort this out here. But he's, the, 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 these own, their, our own desires function in two ways here in verse uh, 14. Um, that, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. So the, 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 Im, the imagery of, of what he's suggesting here is that they that that just like a, a hook uh, lures a fish just like the bait on that hook entices the fish so too do our own desires trap us and tantalize us now Again, we could talk about other things. The, the, the devil is involved in that dynamic. The world system is involved in that dynamic. Other people, the company that we keep is involved in that dynamic. But what James is saying is that our own desires have brought their own hook and bait to get us. You and I are the enemy of you and I. I, I don't need anybody else against me. But he goes on. James then shifts metaphors in verse 15. We're talking about fishing, and now we're, we're talking of, gonna talk about conception and childbirth for a moment, huh? Yeah. But look, there's verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, in other words, when we bit the hook because we like the bait, uh, then when desire, when it has conceived, you see the, the imagery here? Um, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. Can you think of, on the one hand, a more beautiful concept in life than the con concept of conception and childbirth? 
truly one of the wonderful human joys that the Lord brings to the human arrangement. And, and yet in this context, there's, there's nothing beautiful about this conception and, and this delivery. Uh, desires conceive with us. So our own desires are, if you would, mating with us, to lure and entice us, to trap us and to tantalize us. It, it, it wouldn't be much of a stretch since James is so oriented to the wisdom of Scripture. You, you think about even other Proverbs that, that talk about uh, the strange woman it luring and enticing us. It's, this is, so it's, it's almost kind of these desires take on the personification of, uh, of, a, of a mate, if you would. And, and so these desires conceive and, and uh, sin is birthed. This is, this is, uh, this is no uh, congratulations. You, you have a beautiful baby boy or Congratulations, you have a, a wonderful daughter. Whoa. You've just delivered a mutant monster. That should be stunning. Every time that you and I pander to the desires of our heart and we chummy up and go on a date with the desires of our heart and we begin to cohabitate with the desires of our heart and before you know we're shacked up with the desires of our heart then what we are conceiving is our own death. This is horrible. And, and, and I'm, I am perplexed as to why the Lord is, is using the metaphor of something that is otherwise so lovely and beautiful and celebratory in life. He uses that to, to, to just whack us with this, like, no, can you use that to, re to talk about this? And he does. Because I think he's under trying to underscore just how extravagantly horrible it is when, when we don't get a grip on our desires and where that takes us. How do we stop this process? Once me and my desires get together, once you and your desires get together, death is the end game of that. Whereas he said in verse 12, if we remain steadfast, there's the crown of life. On the other hand, if we, if we say, I'm not up for that steadfast route, I, I'm going to flirt with my own desires and hang out with them for a while, then death is the end game. How do we stop the process? Well, sadly, tragically, our culture has figured out how to horrendously, murderously stop the process of conception. And sadly, they're very proud of that.
So the metaphor breaks down here on some point. What James is, I think the intent of James's words is we, we stop the death-giving birth prior to the point of conception. We come to grips with the status and the flow and the loves of our own desires. Well, that's the issue, but have you ever tried that? Have you ever tried to nip it in the bud, if you would, your desires? You're still looking for the switch to flip. <laughs> Can't find it. I don't know how to, it's not in the owner's manual. Paul, at the very tail end of chapter 7, after he's so exasperated with himself, for the law of God told him, don't covet. You know what that did for Paul? Same thing it does for a two-year-old when you say, get your hand out of the cookie jar. It ignited in that two-year-old all kinds of desire for cookies in the cookie jar. When, when the law said to Paul, don't covet, do you know what that did? That created all kinds of covetousness, desire. It awakened, it stimulated. I want some of that. Paul says at the end of Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Paul felt profoundly uh, the the seemingly incapable ability to control himself, to control his own desires. So it wouldn't be odd that maybe a couple of us feel similarly. I would love to get a handle on my desires. But it seems like, I, I, I don't know how. Paul begins to point us to how. In other words, while the problem resides in me, with my desires, while the problem resides in you, with your desires, uh, the solution doesn't reside in me. The solution doesn't reside in you. Paul would say, you know who the solution resides in? You would figure Paul's going to say this. He would say, but thanks be to God, who Jesus Christ, our Lord. He points us to Jesus. He points us to the one who loved us while we were still sinners. He loved us long before he knew the full extent of our depraved desires. He loved us uh, not only after we decided to turn a corner, turn over a new leaf, get our act together, and start to fly right. He loved us when, e when A, we didn't have the capacity to do those things, and B, we didn't even have the want to to do those things. He laid his life down on the cross for us while we were still sinners, still held captive and bound to our own sinful inclinations. 
Jesus Christ died for sinners. He didn't die for those who were lovely enough to get a handle on their sinful desires. He loved those who in their unloveliness loved their desires more than they even loved him. He laid down his life nonetheless. And as you and I begin to see that kind of love, as we behold the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, as we look at Jesus and we keep staring at Jesus, and that's really why he's left us his word, so that we have um, a, 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 the, the means by which, by his spirit, we can look to him, look at him, look about him, and gaze at him and stare at him. As we look at him through his gospel, through his word, his spirit alters our loves and our desires. He gives us new loves, and he gives us new desires. And so when James says, uh, blessed, happy is the man who remains steadfast under trials, um, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And not only him, but, but, but which God has promised to all those who love him. You see, it's possible for your loves and my loves and your desires and my desires to be expunged from our lives, moved out, squeezed out, pushed to the back as we behold the beauty and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ day by day by day by day. Jesus is more desirable than our sin. Jesus is more beautiful than our sin. Jesus is altogether more lovely than our sin. And when we see him as he is, our desires are redirected. Our hearts are satisfied. We delight in his goodness to us. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for what he has done for us. Thank you for what he has now, even through James, directed us to consider. Father, we are so grateful that you have loved us with an everlasting love. You have loved us in your Son and you have applied the Son's love to our hearts by your Spirit. Oh, Father, satisfy us with your steadfast love. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.